0: The Grimerica Show. With me, as always, my co-host Graham. How's it going, Graham?
1: I'm doing pretty good. Looking forward to talking to Red Pill Junkie.
0: Yeah, we've got uh, Red Pill Junkie here now, and of course, we'll have Scotty Roberts coming up a little later on. Um, but for now, let's deal with the the man of the hour. How's it going, R P J? Hey guys, how are you? How's the weather? Weather treating you? Well, we've both managed to, st- to stay pretty dry. Uh, there's about a hundred thousand people downtown that are displaced right now, but. Uh, the Grimerica studio is uh, nice and dry.
1: Yeah, there's a big flood here in Calgary, and uh, I had to take about a 50-kilometer detour to get here. So it's uh, it's pretty strange seeing a city full of water like this.
2: Well, I get a feeling that we will all have to cope with these kind of uh, disasters on a more regular basis in the years to come, you know?
0: Yeah, it's almost like uh, the planet is changing, um, well, the climate is obviously changing. Uh, there's obviously some uh, discrepancies between uh, people saying who's changing the climate or why it's changing. But uh, irregardless of that, something is definitely happening and uh, there's going to be some changes in our future.
1: Yeah, I want to say, too, before I forget that our uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to those who, uh, <clears throat> who have been displaced here in Calgary.
0: Hopefully everyone uh, found a nice warm place to stay. Um, I actually heard this morning that out of the 100,000 people that were displaced, only 1,500 needed emergency shelters at the rec centers, and the rest were all put up with friends or family. So so that's a, a glimpse into the good side
2: of humanity. Yeah, that's good. Good to hear. Yeah, and we can always uh, uh, put up some link uh, where people can visit uh, the Great America site and if they want to donate some money to the Red Cross or whatever, you know. Yeah, we should definitely, I'll
0: definitely do that, actually. That's a good idea here for the next, I, I'm pretty sure they were saying it's uh, going to probably around a half a billion dollars in damage so far, but I'd imagine that's going to go up quite a bit. But I understand you guys have some uh, some water issues yourself down there.
2: Yeah, we've had some issues with this uh, tropical storm barry, uh, which has caused us a lot of damage in uh, southeastern states, uh, Veracruz, Tabasco, all these places. Uh, are suffering a lot of problems because the the, the roads get blocked and people are uh, get trapped and have to be evacu- evacuated by the army.
0: I, knew I read the red pills this week. They were great as always. Um, what's, uh, can you fill us in a little bit there, what the, the top stories are in the
2: fringe and Fortiana world? Sure. Well, speaking about the southeast of Mexico, last week was a great week for archaeology fans because there was a lot of... Uh, very interesting findings, one was made in uh, Cambodia when the uh, archaeologists found a lost city uh, covered deep in the jungle. I think that the city uh, uh, was, uh, was ref- referred in some legends and some t- uh, folkloric t- tradition, but the, until, uh, up, on, up until now, nobody really uh, knew of, of its existence. Archaeologists managed to find another great uh, Maya city. Yes, uh, they call this new uh, archaeological site Chactun, which means uh, red stone, I think. It's very interesting. It's the uh, archaeologists say that this city is from the, what, what they call the late classic, which is uh, like uh, 1,400 years old, uh, apparently. And it's in, in pristine state. No, uh, nobody knew of, of its existence, and that's great because then you can uh, dismiss the, the threat of looting by dig robbers, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. So
2: was it just in the jungle or was it buried? Well, not exactly buried, but uh, it was uh, covered by uh, tree south growth and all that, you know. They, yeah. I think how they managed to locate it was through um, aerial surveillance. And the the, the plane they used, it was also equipped with uh, LiDAR scanners. And the LiDAR scanners managed to uh, give a rough reference of the city's layout. It's a very, it's a very wide city, by the way.
0: Yeah, I heard about that. That's some new, uh, that's their new method. It uh, involves lasers in some way, doesn't it? And it's, uh, they say it's going to uh, revolutionize looking for these lost cities in the jungle.
2: Yes, most definitely. The places that were, you can barely see any traces of human activity. With the help of these new technologies, uh, you can. It's like an X-ray vision or something you can get rid of, of the vegetation that is covering uh, the archaeological sites. And it definitely will, uh, will bring about a new era of archaeological discoveries. Uh, some of my friends in the United States uh, say that uh, this will be really helpful, cover up new uh, uh, boreal mounds that are scattered all around the United States territory That maybe for political reasons of lack of resources have never had been the chance to be uh, studied deeply.
1: Do you know if uh, that can be used over water eventually? Like to maybe go over the uh, areas where supposed, uh, you know, Atlantis and all these other underground underwater cities are?
2: You know, that's a good question. I really, I'm not sure, but I can't doubt it because uh, after all, uh, laser is a, is, a, is a form of coherent light and uh, water is, is scatters light, right? So maybe with uh, undergra- underwater uh, constructions, underwater archaeological remains, we will have to make use of uh, other types of technology like sonar, sonar yeah. scanners. But we can still find fucking El Dorado. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, I think that's uh, a month ago, archaeologists had said that they had discovered a city called uh, the White City, La Ciudad Blanca. I think it was in Bolivia or Colombia. I'm not sure right now. But it's a very interesting, a very exciting uh, announcement because this city had been uh, sought out by the Spanish conquistadores uh, 500 years ago, and nobody managed to find it. So it's kind of a, a legendary place. In other news, uh, it was also a very interesting, exciting uh, day for Mars fans. There was uh, an article published on the, guard, on the Guardian that told about that, that scientists have finally found evidence that Mars' atmosphere had once uh, been filled with oxygen. A billion years before Earth managed to have oxygen in its atmosphere. Yeah, so that totally lends to the fact that uh, that's that. To me, that to me, that's a huge supporter of the panspermia theory. Definitely, most definitely, it's uh, another uh, important uh, discovery hinting to the to the fact that Mars once had an habitable environment and was pop- uh, most more than likely uh, uh, contained life. But you know this. Uh, scientists are still trying to be conservative about it they are not uh, really sure if mars uh, was the product of uh, biological activity as as it was here on earth in, in, in the history of our planet uh, the oxygen we now breathe was uh, produced by the algae on the oceans and even it's interesting to note that in uh, I remember like uh, 500 million years ago or maybe even before uh, when the algae started to produce oxygen, oxygen is really a very corrosive gas. So it it was like if the atmosphere was started to fill in with poison and and so it provoked a huge die out of the very primitive uh, uh, multicellular uh, organisms that that were starting to develop on develop on our planet but eventually uh, life managed to adapt to the to the presence of oxygens and now uh, we humans and uh, most of the animal animals and plant life uh, existing in our planet depend on oxygen
0: yeah now we'll end up uh, once we finish fucking up the earth we'll just head right back to mars and it's just like a vicious (laughs) fucking cycle
1: Oh, great. Now Darren's going to exactly. make his Mars One kick here.
0: No, I'm good with Mars One. We, we exactly. have... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to lay off Mars One for a while. I emailed him again for an interview, but I, I got no reply. He has done a few interviews, though. There's a few out there on YouTube you can find.
1: I'm in the middle of my application process right now.
2: Really? Have you uh, produced your video yet?
1: I'm No, I'm working on it. I'm just doing the written application. I've paid my $40, and I'm getting ready to do the video.
0: I'll will t- shoot I'll shoot the video if you need.
1: So what's uh, that was? Uh, what do you think about that? Uh,
0: the uh, Chinese farmer going to jail there. Farmer, the one who faked the rubber alien.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Didn't he end? Didn't he end up in jail now?
2: Maybe, maybe he w- he went to jail for a couple of days. But uh, I mean, it was mostly harmless. Nobody, nobody is stupid who was stupid enough to fall for that. And it was almost uh, sad.
0: Yeah, I see here, actually, you only got five five days. Okay, well, five days.
2: And hopefully he will uh, learn his lessons, because in this field, I think there's nothing more dangerous than a well-intentioned idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that you mentioned China, because another of the news that caught my attention this week is uh, this one reported by RT, uh that says that china has issued the penalty of execution for environmental polluters whoa they're not fucking around yeah how about that you know we have reached they have reached that point and they have to <laughs> threaten people with death the death penalty uh, if they if they pollute their their environment yeah well i guess that's a huge problem over there yeah surely i mean here in Mexico, we have our own problems uh, with the environment. In, in Mexico, uh, uh, just today, I had to uh, uh, take my car to be what we call ver- verified. What it is, is that you ha- if, you ha- you own, if you own a car and if you want to drive the car through the city, you have to make sure that the emissions that are expelled by your mo- motor are not, ex- uh, uh, don't have an excess of uh, pollutants, no? So they have to go check, check the ozone and the uh, carbon dioxide emissions. And if the, the emissions are within the the, the the limits, then they give you your seal and you are free to to use your car. And if they don't, then you have to go take your car to the shop and get, take it to a tune up or whatever. And then, uh, so so you uh, so you have uh, the, the freedom to use your own car uh, on the streets of the city. It was a measure that, uh, that was issued about 20 years ago because of the uh, amount of the, uh, what we call uh, IMECAs, the, the, the level of carbon dioxide on the atmosphere that was reaching uh, very dangerous levels. And because of that, uh, uh, the order was issued that cars, uh, private cars will have to be uh, not used one day of the week, what we call Oino Circula. It's an, uh, a measure that I'm sure our, our American friends will find, will find, <laughs> I don't know, totalitarian. Yeah, we do
1: that uh, in Canada, in some parts of Canada, too. I know in B.C., British Columbia, there's a, an air care required every two years, um, but people have kind of figured out ways to to get through it a little easier, like running your car hard for 20 minutes before you go in, that type of thing. And apparently it uh, almost guarantees you're going to pass.
2: Yeah, what happened here in Mexico is that people who c- could afford it uh, bought a second car <laughs> to use when your main car uh, had to stay home. So in, uh, at, in the end, they measured uh, aggravated to go
0: around the law, you know? Yeah, I don't think in Canada we've ever had a day of the week you couldn't drive. So is that like a certain day or is it just like uh, everyone has a different day or you pick your own day?
2: Yeah, everyone has a different uh, a day depending of the number uh, at the end of your license plate. You know, if you are nine, you then you have to stay home on Friday. And if you're out, if you're, your number is eight, then you have to stay on Thursday, right? What number have you got? Uh, zero. But my car is uh, is not is not a uh, ten years old yet, so that means that I can uh, use it uh, every day of the week. That's that's the other thing that they that they agreed that newer cars were exempt of this program, even though recently there's been talk that they are discussing that maybe in the future, even the newer cars will have to stick to the program and, and and not be used one day of the week, which will be, I don't know, I think it won't solve the problem. It will make it even worse.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess they've got good intentions, but I don't see that working. It's got to be done uh, different than that, I suppose. They just really need to go, go over. It's just a matter of time till we go over
2: to fully electric, I think, anyway. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, and the problem is that... Uh, even if the private cars who have uh, tuned-up motors staying home, all the buses and trucks <laughs> who are spewing huge amounts of, of, uh, of smog, of they are uh, free to to uh, to drive all day. So that's that's really unfair for the middle-class tax-paying uh, uh, working man. Who needs to find a way to to go to his work or 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 take uh, uh, his kids, his or her kids, to school, where um, meanwhile uh, this, the city allows uh, protesters to block the, the streets and cause huge uh, traffic jams, which eventually, obvi- obviously, will create uh, a huge amounts of uh, pollution. It's, uh, I mean, it's it's really. It's more of a political problem than, than uh, an environmental one.
0: Yeah, uh, well, we've got major traffic problems here in uh, Calgary right now. But I mean, I've seen a, a few of the pictures you've sent me. We've got nothing compared to some of the traffic that's roaming around in that city.
2: Yeah, the, I mean, you, you really don't know what a traffic jam is until you leave it here in Mexico City, believe me.
0: Is that the worst in the world? I I heard there was a place in Sweden that was uh, maybe a
2: little worse, but I'm pretty sure Mexico City is one of the the worst places. I'm sure that Mexico City is at the top five. Uh, I mean, I've read about some problems in Russia. I think a traffic jam that lasted like five days. (laughs) But here in Mexico, uh, you are guaranteed to have uh, traffic jams uh, every day of the week. The only time you don't have uh, traffic traffic is uh during the holidays when when most of the people are out of the city yeah so what's your average commute like then recently our we changed our our office uh, to a place that's closer to my home so now my average uh, commute time is like mm, 40 minutes which is which is a really uh, a huge a huge improvement improvement over what I used to uh, uh, endure for the past 10 years. How long you you in the morning, Graham?
0: Must take you a while to, right now.
1: Uh, mine's about 35 minutes maybe. Depends on trains and traffic and stuff. But yeah, usually uh, 30 to 40 minutes. Gives me enough time to listen to the latest podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's the one good thing about traffic, I guess. It used to be a lot worse. Yeah, you know, now with the podcast, <laughs> sometimes I sometimes you wish to, to extend your commute so you can finish the last podcast. Yeah.
1: So are you getting ready for another uh, red pills of the week uh, here?
2: No, no tomorrow.
1: Anything, uh, can you have any sneak peeks?
2: Yes. Uh, I mean, I think that the, few, the, the, the most important uh, news of the week was the end of what is it, called the British UFO files. The, the British government uh, finally released the last batch of its official uh, UFO files to the public ending uh, a 50 year uh, uh, span of time when they were interested in officially st- study and investigate UFO reports uh, but uh, as you pro- may probably know the what you call the weird desk of the UFO files desk was closed in 2009.
0: Is there, is there any sort of form of MUFON or public program over there in uh, in U.K.?
2: Well, I think there's a few uh, independent uh, UFO groups like in the United States. Maybe MUFON has a, U, a U.K. UK branch. Remember, there was this other group. Uh, their acronym was ASAP or A-S-S-A-P. The ones who uh, said last year that uh, there was no point to studying UFOs. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. They said uh,
2: there is no phenomena. Yeah, I mean, it was so stupid because uh, the reason they say that did any UFO case in our website, and I remember that uh, Ben and Aaron said, well, maybe because your website is a piece of crap, <laughs> and nobody's interested in wasting their time uh, uh, writing something there, uh, because let's, uh, 2012 was a huge uh, year in UFO activity. and Another problem is that now that the United Kingdom is closing their, their beautiful desk, uh, the citizens will not will not have a a uh, uh, a place to go
0: I'm on the asap website right now actually I, I I
2: remember that I checked it out last year and it was a very disappointing place I mean it's the typical uh, ufo apologist I don't know I think there's something about a British ufologists, right? They're much more skeptics than their American counterparts. If you go to the blog of Dr. David Clark, who is the one who has been most involved with with the release of the UFO British files, you can read that the fact that some of these sightings and reported by helicopter pilots, soldiers, and police officers Underlies how even so-called credible witnesses can be mistaken about things they have seen in the sky. I mean, you read that and you go, "Man, hello!" I mean, have you have you, have you even bothered to read Leslie King's book?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think causes that, or is there? Can you attribute something to that—the culture in the UK—or?
2: I mean, I don't want to go on the conspiracy uh, line here. I mean, uh, you can, there are some people who have accused Clark of being a UFO disinformant. I don't want to go there. Uh, I think that it's just a, a refusal to, to, to see the I mean, the, the, uh, the UK has concluded that the UFOs do not represent a... Uh, uh, a diff, uh, a threat uh, to the united kingdom but uh, maybe they and are, are not taking into account the case of the Rendlesham forest in the 19 in the 1980s where when a ufo uh, managed to cost quite, quite a steer inside one of the most important and sensitive uh, military installations in their own in their own country and according to colon, Colonel Charles Halt, the UFO managed to adversely affect the integrity of nu- nuclear weapons. I mean, if that is not a ma- matter of national defense, uh, then I, I don't know what it is.
1: Yeah, it, bl- it blows me away that we're still dealing with this uh, denial that there's a genuine
2: phenomenon.
0: Well, maybe the UK just figures that between the states and Russia, they don't need to
2: waste their money. Maybe, maybe. I mean, but, and China, and China, uh, but I don't know. I think uh, the problem when you you closed official avenues is that someone will eventually fill that gap, and then uh, that gap is easily filled by people who really don't have maybe the skills or the appropriate method- methodology to study the UFO phenomenon. Uh, last week, I read about uh, how many people were mocking uh, a documentary that was uh, aired on uh, UK's Channel 4. It was called Confessions of an Alien Abducting. And, and, even, and I even uh, mentioned it on the last Red Pills of the Week about a woman called uh, named Chantelle, who claims to be the most abducted uh, woman in the, in the United Kingdom. And you look at this woman, and it's it's very difficult not to not to try to make fun of her. I mean, just by her physical appearance. I mean, the hairdo, the hairdo she uses. <laughs> I I admit that I I couldn't resist making a fun, uh, making some comment that maybe the conehead would get getting sloppy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Looks like she's right out of the forties or the fifties.
0: Well, they got to find the fucking craziest looking one.
2: Yes, that's the problem because they are they always looking for the oddballs, you know. The the media is always uh, uh, paying attention to the ones with the, the craziest ideas or the ones who are the, the, the most extravagant. They never pay attention to people who have uh, good jobs, who have a stable a stable, uh, a stable, social life and who also claim to have the abduction experience. And on the other hand, maybe the reason they don't focus, focus on the, those people is because those people prefer to keep their experiences uh, private. They don't go around claiming to be an alien abductee because they know the minute, the minute they go uh, to the public uh, w- with those claims, they will be ridiculed.
0: Yeah, there's always there seems to be that giggle factor. Like, um, there's really not much you can do about that. And I I know if I brought it up in like my circles, I would I'd probably uh, I'd probably get the same thing. Yeah, I've never been abducted, but you you know what I mean.
1: Let's play a tiny clip here Perfect. just to see what it sounds like.
3: up, and it's like after that, I can't remember anything. It must have levitated up to ear, and I seen something go shoot past. I seen it with corner of my eye first, and I thought, oh, what was that? It just went straight past me. Just glowing like a neon blue colour, white, and sometimes changing into a gold colour. They They're only about that size. And were you scared? No, little tiny orbs. No. 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 (laughs) Yeah, it can be a scary experience, and it's also an amazing experience. You say you want this to stop, but uh, I'm not sure you really do, Shanty. No, I don't think I do, to be honest. If they do stop, I'd miss it, basically. They're like... Stop! yeah, me, I probably miss them really because to me, they're like part, part part, of my family,
0: huh? Interesting. So, was that the actual chick?
2: Yeah, 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 good score. And I think that uh, she said that the last time she was abducted, uh, she was just eating uh, at K- KFC. <laughs>
0: So do you have any, uh, do you have any little uh, teasers for this week's Red Pills before we... Uh, well, I guess by the time people hear it, it'll be out.
2: Well, uh, two more before we wrap this up, because uh, I have to go in a, in a minute. The one is, uh, it was a, a sad news for the people, the community of uh, the passing of Michael Bayjent. I, I hope I'm uh, uh, pronouncing correctly he was important because uh, he wrote this very influential book holy, Bo- holy blood and holy grail which eventually uh, influenced uh, dan brown uh, and and to the, in the writing of the famous da vinci code and because of the da vinci code the idea of that jesus maybe he that maybe jesus was married to, uh, to mary magdalene and the grail uh, referred to uh, his blood lineage who was done uh, through uh, Jesus' uh, daughter and then through the, a line of uh, French kings called the Merovingians. Well, all these ideas started thanks to Michael That's, uh How old was he? Late 60s or early 70s, I think. I think that the problem is that uh, he started to suffer a lot of health issues uh, because of uh, a very painful uh, litigation problems he had when he he and his partners went out to uh, sue Dan Brown, they alleged that uh, Dan Brown had infringed in, com- in, in, in copyright infringements uh, when writing uh, the Da Vinci Code. But in the end, Dan, Dan Brown uh, managed to win and uh, Bajan and his partner were forced to to pay a huge, a huge uh, uh, debt. They were forced to pay uh, the the publishing companies of Dan Brown, I think it's about the, 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 the legal fees, which amounted to, I don't know, <laughs> a lot of money. And after that, uh, Michael Bajent started to suffer uh, a lot of health issues. Yeah, stress will do that to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And finally, we also have a, one of the most important news that was commented last week, this week, was a documentary about TWA Flight 800. I don't know if you guys remember that it was a plane crash that happened in 1996. Uh, and after a four year investigation, uh, the Federal Aviation Agency uh, concluded that the crash was the result of an internal fire that was, I mean, it was an accident. uh, 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 Mechanical error. Exactly. And with this new documentary, they are again uh, raising the theory that the plane uh, was brought down by a missile, that it was a terrorist attack. Oh really? Yeah, and the producers of the film are, are pleading to the United States government to reopen the case to, and to look again at the at the new evidence that they have apparently uncovered. And it's a, it's an interesting idea. I mean, uh, I I suppose it's it's something like that happened to, uh, now uh, again uh, in the years 2013. Many more people uh, will will be supporting uh, will suspect uh, a terrorist attack. Yeah, you'd think someone would have claimed it, though. Yeah, well, back in those days, I remember. I mean, there were people who witnessed the the plane going down. They said that they, according to them, that they saw like a, a a small line of Light crossing the sky and hitting the plane. So were they? You know, maybe it was a UFO. No, not not that I know of. And maybe in those days, some some ufologists might have uh, might have wondered if it was the result of a UFO. But I don't think that idea caught. You know, I think that the two leading hypotheses is it was either a malfunction or it was a, 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 a terrorist attack.
0: Well, when's the documentary supposed to come out? Is it out already? I think it's out al- already. What did you say it was called again? We'll make sure we link to it.
2: I I tried to find the name of the documentary and I couldn't, and I couldn't find it, but maybe it's about TWE flight 18 or something.
0: Yeah. Graham will track it down. He's a pro. Perfect. well, that's all i have for uh, for this week guys okay rpj well thanks a lot for coming on and uh we'll probably see you next month perfect
2: and I, yeah thanks a lot I, thank you guys and see you around and uh goodbye to all people listening thanks to stopping by okay big thanks to
0: uh rpj for stopping by again uh we're gonna take a quick break guys and we'll be right back with our interview with scotty roberts I'm a
2: boy, punch, 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 punch,
3: punch, 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 pun
0: Okay guys, welcome back to uh, the Grimerica show and as promised we're going to be talking with uh, Scotty Roberts tonight. First uh, with me as always is Graham. How's it going tonight, Graham?
1: Hey, I'm doing really good. I'm feeling better. Had my uh, yoga last night that I've been missing. So uh I'm feeling feeling pretty good. So so tonight we have uh, Scotty Roberts here, who's the uh, founder publisher of uh, Intrepid Mag. He's also the organizer or co organizer of Paradigm Symposium that's coming up uh, in October 2013. And also he's uh, he's been the author of uh, at least two books there: the Rise and Fall of the Nephilim and the Secret History of the Reptilians. And we're going to be talking about his uh, another book, uh, his new book coming out,
0: Exodus. I think it's called a. Eh?
1: No, it's called the Exodus Reality, I believe. Oh, well,
0: uh, we'll let uh, Scotty tell us all about it, I'm sure. How's it going tonight, Scotty? Excellent, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're glad to have you I'm glad, glad you could come through for us. So, um, I don't know where to, where to start, really. I suppose let's start uh, maybe with uh, your work with Intrepid Magazine.
4: Sure. Uh, well, uh, I, I can take it back a step from that. Um, I uh, worked as the editor-in-chief for uh, taps paramag which is the ghost hunters from sci-fi their official magazine and when i was brought on there i was asked what my vision for that magazine was and i said i think you guys need to keep the the fan base and appeal to the fans as a fanzine for ghost hunters and their various shows i said but expand a little bit uh... you're gonna find people that don't give two shits about ghost hunting that'll want to pick up your magazine if it has other content in it and uh, they said fantastic let's do it. And I had, uh, I said, we got to move into tech. I said, let's get a, an app and let's get uh, the website refurbished and all of this. And I, I kept, without being critical of them, I understood their viewpoint. Uh, I kept getting halted on it. You know, we got to walk before we can run. We got to do this. And, and, and I said, uh, after about a year and a half of that, I, I said, you know, guys, um, uh, I reproposed everything I started at the beginning and, and it just didn't get accepted again. It was just, we got to wait. We got to wait. And I said, well, look, uh, we're going to walk ourselves into non-existence if we're not careful. Um, And uh, so there were other uh, things that we disagreed on, and we had some disputes over some things. But we parted as friends and left it that way. And the the very next day, uh, which was December 29th of 2010, I founded Intrepid Magazine. And I said, uh, now I'm going to do a magazine that um, does basically what I want and what I like. And, and, and people ask me, what's intrepid all about? I say, it's the stuff I like. And uh, that's what we do. We do politics. We do science. We do fringe science. Uh, we do uh, metaphysics, uh, ufology, ancient aliens or paleo paleocontact. Uh, we do uh, history, uh, archaeology, psychology at times. Um, and sometimes we delve into even the paranormal. I try to avoid the paranormal a bit uh, uh, per se, but they do overlap uh nowadays where they did they used to be concentric circles that would never touch each other uh repelled each other as a matter of fact now they're crossing over in many areas so that makes it very easy for me and my writers um and uh we are a digital magazine meaning i lay the magazine out exactly as if we were going to print and paper but we burn it to pdf and we release it that way to people uh, we're working up to, uh, to to get to a print magazine where everybody says because the technology is so high that uh, print is dead. And you know what? I, I don't believe that for a minute. I have so many people that say, well, I'll order your magazine as soon as you uh, come out and print. And so uh, uh, print will never die. It's just the, the advent of technology and the more technologically we grow. And, and of course, as the newer generation comes up, that's going to be more and more proliferated. So uh, right now, we're just a digital magazine. We printed one print magazine, and that was, uh, you saw it at the Paradigm Symposium last year. We printed uh, an issue and doubled it up and used it as the program for the uh, event as well. So that's where Intrepid came. We are entering our third year of publication. We started uh, publishing issue one in April of 2011, and we're now uh, in uh, June of 2013, which is only two years out, but we've begun our third year. So uh, Micah Hanks, as you all know, uh, works with me on the magazine, and uh, he, is, uh, he is my technical advisor. He is my editor-in-chief, and uh, he supplies uh, fantastic articles for me and uh, himself, and uh, he's an asset to what we do.
0: Yeah, Grimerica actually has a copy of your, your, your print, Intrepid Magazine. We've actually got it autographed by, I think, every, everybody in the lineup.
4: Oh, fantastic. We had quite a lineup at Paradigm Symposium last year. We had Eric Von Daniken, who wrote Chariots of the Gods 40 years ago, and 32, 33 now books since then. Uh, we had the, the whole cast of ancient aliens, uh, Giorgio Soukoulis, Philip Coppens, and very sad to say the late Philip Coppins. Uh, we, have, uh, we had uh, uh, Bill Burns was supposed to be there, and, and a week before the event he had to cancel. He had some commitments he could not get out of. And uh, so he couldn't make it. But we had George Norrie from Coast to Coast Radio, uh, Ian Punnett, who did the weekend Coast to Coast and does a uh, a daily show up here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and uh, and a bunch of authors that you all know. And uh, it was, in my estimation, I-, I had said to Micah ahead of time, I said, even if we don't break even on this event, if I will consider it a success if people, as they're walking out the door on Sunday afternoon say, that was amazing. I can't wait till next year.
1: Yeah, and, and it was. And it was.
4: That's exactly what happened.
1: <clears throat> and you you and Micah did such a great job hosting it, you know, just uh, doing the – and keeping everything on schedule and the way you guys would uh, introduce all the people and do your little show there, your little stand-up show. I mean, and and you guys were so approachable. I had a really, really good time just meeting everybody and and talking to everybody, uh, all these open-minded people. So we're, we're really looking forward to uh, the next one. Micah,
4: Micah and I said last year, we had talked originally about do we need to script anything for this? And, and I said, uh, and we both agreed, no, we don't need to script this. We need to just go up and be ourselves and our job is to keep the energy high, keep people happy, uh, be excited to be there. And so that's what we did. Between every speaker, we, we just got on the mics and walked up and said, uh, let's stay excited. And uh, I got to tell you, um, my adrenaline dropped to below zero the, the moment that event ended. And I said, see you next year, folks. I turned off the mic and I just went, <laughs> and, and I was gone because I was running on a high octane all weekend. And so it was a, a fantastic event even for us. And, and uh, I, I will say uh, we, we have we garnered mild criticism every now and then because uh, of the price of our tickets. We run from 250 on the low side to 450 on the high side for the packages. And people say, you know, boy, that's an awful lot. Or uh, somebody said, wow, another uh, another event for the rich. And I said, you know, um, and I said publicly to people. I said, these things cost a hell of a lot of money to put on. I would say, and I got no problem releasing this, we probably spent about $80,000 last year putting that event on, and we, we didn't take in $80,000. So uh, we didn't break even last year, but we measured the success of this by the way that people reacted and said, we're digging deep in our pockets to, to, to still pay for last year, but let's, let's move ahead and do next year. And uh, we've got a fantastic lineup this year. And, uh, we've got, uh, Scott Walter from, uh, uh, H2's, uh, America Unearthed. We've got Robert Baval, Egyptologist. He's been on ancient aliens. You've seen him on every Egyptological show documentary on the TV. I think, uh, we've got LA Marzuli who wrote the, uh, the selling Nephilim series and is doing a series of, uh, videos on uh, the watchers. We've got Dr. Robert shock who wrote the book on the water damage on the Sphinx. He's a, uh, Boston University professor and a geologist, I think is his official title. And uh, um, we've got a couple of people yet, even only just under four months out, we've still got a couple of people who have expressed interest and we're waiting for their commitment level, for their commitment to it. Uh, one of them is, uh, if you've heard of him, Shimka Yakubovitchi. We hope to land him in. Uh, he, is, uh, he was on History International before became H2, and uh, he had a show called The Naked Archaeologist. Oh, and, yeah. and a fantastic show. We've got a couple of other people that are going to be there speaking. That'll be surprised. surprise. Uh, we've got Dr. John DeSalvo, who was kind of a... We fit him in last year because he was there at one of the author tables, uh, Inner Traditions. Yeah, he was who is, Crystal
0: uh, Skulls, eh?
4: Yes, and he's coming sp- an official speaker this year. And, uh, by the way, his publisher, Inner Traditions, is uh, our biggest sponsor this year. So, uh, um, uh, we're going to be doing a lot of a lot of pumping of uh, Inner Traditions and their authors. We've got a couple of their authors right now.
0: Yeah, and, you can uh, pump uh, intert- Inner Traditions tires all you want here because uh, we've got a pretty good relationship with uh, them as well. They, they've they provided us with a, a few books and a few interviews and, and the whole nine years. They're, they're, they've got absolutely fantastic people over there.
4: Yeah, fantastic. I work with uh, John Hayes and Maria uh, Murray, I think her last name is. Yeah, I, I would hate for her to hear that I can't remember her last name. We have a great rapport, so uh, um, and we've got a ton of, uh, uh, of sponsors this year, and you know some of them come on financially and help you. Some of them come on and help promote you uh, in exchange for sponsorship, and so uh, um, uh, it's expensive putting these things on, and we make no bones about it. And so uh, – but we want to put on the best event possible.
1: So does that mean you guys even have room to talk yourselves? Are you going to be speaking and, and Micah? Yes.
4: Uh, uh, Micah will be speaking. Um, I, we both spoke last year. Yeah. And uh, I will be speaking with Dr. Ward on our oh. book, The Exodus Reality, uh-huh. this year. And uh, that will be a lot of fun. Are you
1: going to have a scarf uh, donned for that?
4: I will probably have a scarf. Now uh, – um, <laughs> I hope John isn't listening to this. I've got a special <laughs> present for him. I wanted to. Uh, I hope to give him before the event. He doesn't know about it, so uh, I can't say. Just in case he listens. <laughs> so, well, hopefully uh, he will.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I can't wait to see uh, Doctor Ward again. He was uh, just fantastic. Chats we had with him over over cigarettes.
4: Oh, he's he's an amazing man, and I got to tell you, um, uh, I, I'm a guy, and I have no problem saying this. I love. John Ward dearly. He is a, he is a, a dear friend. Uh, I rank him up there with Micah. These are two men in my life that I say, I love these people uh, with all my heart, and I love them dearly. And uh, spending a month with John, and uh, Maria tagged along on a lot of the things that we did. Uh, his uh, fiancée, she is also his associate uh, with uh, their project, the, the, the Sirius Project, and they work the, the uh, quarries of Gebel El Silsila. Under permission by the Department of Antiquities, and uh, they uh, catalog, uh, epigraphic survey, and symbolism, and things like that. And uh, uh, but we uh, spending a month with him, just going from place to place to place to place was amazing, and uh, his connections got us into places that people don't get to go of course we saw the touristy things and we got into things that most people can pay to get in at the at the gate and see a temple or something but we were taken uh here's a here's a good example for you um we drove over to the sinai to see a little mountain that we both believe is the the uh, holy mountain of god mentioned in the book of exodus mount sinai at least it's a very high candidate for this mountain and uh um, we drove over the the northern tip of the the left finger of the Red Sea, and uh, through the Su- under the Suez Canal in a tunnel, and we uh, we were put up as guests of Sheikh Barakat of the region there. And there's nothing there. His village is there, um, which isn't big at all. It's a few houses, and uh, we slept in a, a Bedouin tent. Uh, On the desert floor that night, the Sheikh and his kids and and his wives all came down with trays full of food for us. Had a fire going inside the tent. Uh, His sons, his adult sons, uh, I got up in the middle of the night to just go see the full moon, because there I am in the middle of the Sinai, in the middle of nowhere. These craggy mountains all around me and the, the, the desert and the wilderness all around me. And here are these two in the moonlight, these two. Uh, young men sleeping, all wrapped up in camel hair blankets, sleeping outside our tent, about 20 feet from the tent in either direction, uh, guarding us for the night. And uh, um, But uh, we walked up the mountain the next day uh, and visited the uh, the ruins of the Temple of Hathor up there. Huh. And uh, it's about about 4,000-year-old uh, temple, and uh, um, Hathor being the cow goddess of Egypt— um, start right away in your head, associating what happened when the Israelites were waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain, and they and they built the altar to the golden calf, which is Hathor, and it was uh, that's one of the biggest connectivities we found in that place, uh, and it's on it's mentioned in the biblical terms as one of the stopping points along the way, and uh, so we place this as as did Petrie, a famous archaeologist of the late 18th century or 19th century. Uh, called this mountain Mount Sinai. Uh, and he was, of course, a de- uh, uh, taken down for that academically. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, anyway, that was the mountain. But what I was going to say about that is one of John's connections. Had a man meet us there by the name of Mustafa Rezik. And uh, Mustafa Rezik uh, showed up in his jeans. He's an Egyptian man. Jeans and tennis shoes and guided us up the mountain path. And it ends up that he is... They call him a guardian, but he was the director of all of Sinai for the government of Egypt and the Department of Antiquities. Hmm. And Here's this guy in his tennis shoes hiking up the mountain with us. Hmm. Uh, We were sitting in the tent that night before, and he asked what my theory was uh, on Moses (laughs) and why this mountain was important. So I gave him about the five-minute rundown, and he leans into me over the fire, and, and he says, I have a surprise for you at the mountaintop. And uh, he showed me some steles that had the characters that I associate with uh, my character, Moses, up at the top. Some things, and I can get into this a little later if you want to, but some things where they are, uh, had Shepsut and the III, her stepson, who they were co-regents at the time that I believe Moses was in power in Egypt. And they, her images were all wiped out after her death. And this is the only place, one of the only places you can find this steles, which was cracked off at the top, so you've got the arched top of this steel. It looks like a tombstone, and it's got her image facing Osiris and Tutmosis the Third's image facing um, um, Hathor, and above both of their names is, are the hieroglyph for the King of Egypt. So this is the one place where you can find, uh, that I know of, where you can find inscriptions that show them both as co-kings of Egypt before she deposed him and took over as pharaoh. Wow. So uh, uh, that was interesting. Then when we were down in Luxor, same kind of guy down there, a friend of John's, Momin Saad. He is the director of uh, Egyptian antiquities for all of Luxor. And uh, he, we sat for coffee. He asked me the same question, my theories and so on. And he says, well, what would you like to see at the temple of complex of Karnak? And I, I, I said, I can get you a list. I gave him a list of 23 things <laughs> I needed to see. He spent a whole day just walking us around Karnak, pointing out all the different things and all the different pylons and all the different temples inside the complex pertaining to this. And uh, he also got us up into one of the tombs, that people just don't get to go see up above Hatshepsut's big temple that's in the cliff face, uh, Dier-Hel-Bawri. And way up in the cliff face is one of the tombs of Senenmut, uh, which was a workers' station 3,500 years ago when they were building her temple and there's pornographic graffiti dating back to that time period on the wall showing Senenmut Shaggin Hatshepsut. Wow. Uh, or, or, as, uh, or as John would say, uh, he says, oh, Scotty, that's Senenmut Rogering Hatshepsut.
1: So, uh, <laughs> that reminds me of the uh, the cliff cliffside caves um, in the Valley of the Kings. I was in Egypt in 1990. <clears throat> Mm. Uh, for a month and we we got to go up there we had to give back sheesh to the the little oh, yeah. boy boys up there on the middle of the cliff but, but those sheesh, little sheesh. caves you could jump jump in and climb all the way down into the bones and i remember breaking a, breaking a flip-flop off and having to walk through it all on my bare feet it was uh, oh nice yeah very strange so when uh, you but- guys when you guys were down there talking to this um director of antiquities did did the fact that Zahi Hawass is, is no longer there, did, did you guys talk about any changes that are happening? Or did you get a feeling that things were opening up at all down there?
4: You, you know, that didn't come up. Zahi Hawass didn't come up except between John and I. Just some conversation about some of his experiences with him, which were he said were very superficial uh, years ago. But um, um, we, John noted especially the way things have changed since the revolution – And one of those is that it has empowered the people. The positive is, you know, you can't be against people trying to make a living and doing it any way they want to. That's just pure and simple entrepreneurship. Uh, But one thing John really saddened John and that I noticed was how overrun the major sites are by people trying to sell you shit. Yeah, and it's the same uh, from as
0: Mexico, the, the, the uh oh, the states yeah. in Mexico uh, were the same way. I was just down there uh, a few months ago and it it you know it's it's fun at first, but uh, after a while it, it gets old. Uh, John
4: taught me a little a little uh, phrase that meant no thank you, and it was La Chakran. And uh, he said, You can say it politely, La Shakran. Uh, or you can go la, la chakran <laughs> you know, tone of voice. It's like get out of my face. I have, I have never had vendors before as I, as I walk by and I say, no, thank you. And I say, no, thank you a dozen times as they follow me, grab me by the arm and turn me around and say, why you not buy from me? And uh, I say, because I don't want it. Um, <laughs> it it's cheap. It's – or, you know, John, John made no bones about it. He said – he says, that's not uh, – what, what's, what's the black stone? Um, not onyx. onyx. Oh. No, 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 no. The um, – Tourmaline? Obsidian or something like that. Obsidian? No, no, I can't remember what it is. These basalt. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah.
4: These basalt statues. They're trying to sell you basalt statues. And John would pick it up and he'd say, That's light as a feather. He says, That's, That's coal. resin. <laughs> That's resin. And uh, he'd, say, he'd say, Bring me something basalt and we can talk. And uh, um, so, you know, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. At times it got aggravating because there was just, it was relentless at some places. And you could almost not enjoy being there because you were surrounded all the time. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think that's one of the byproducts of a people who have never had the opportunity like this before. Yeah, yeah.
1: Did and you, so, go ahead. Did you make it all the way down to Aswan? We did uh, not. We were Abisimbo? going to.
4: We were going to. And we only got as far as Silsila, which I think is about halfway between Luxor and Aswan. Mm-hmm. And that's the site where uh, John and Maria do their excavation. Oh, the, right, right. The quarries down there. And we were actually on the west bank of the quarries. We were going through cliff face. People would call them tombs. They're open. Uh, you can find some brilliant color left in some of these. Um, and they're, they're, but we have to crawl along these cliff faces. And it's not really all that high. But if you fall off of one of those cliff faces and fall, oh, three meters to the ground uh, on, our, on a rock or into the Nile, uh, it's going to hurt. So uh, we weren't all that high. It's not like we were aerial, you know. Uh, But uh, we're crawling along these cliff faces, sometimes bent over a little backwards, hugging the wall, and uh, getting into some of these spiases, these little uh, shrines. And we found the shrine of Senenmut, uh, the shrine of Hetshepsut. Uh, John found the shrine of uh, Amenhotep III and uh, Amenhotep, son of Hapu. Uh, By the way, John and I, in this book, we present two different views of Moses and who the people were around him, separated by about 80 years, two generations in the pharaonic line. He places his under Amenhotep the I place mine under under Amenhotep the the grand the grandfather of uh, Amenhotep the third. And uh, so we, uh, um, well, while we differed on that, uh, we wrote our book, and we have a uh, uh, when we talk about it, we have a nice little repartee that goes back and forth. Uh, John will say, uh, he says, "Oh, Scotty," he says. Your theory is amazing it's just too bad it's so full of holes <laughs> and uh, and I would re- retort with well what do you know you just dig in the sand I read books and uh, so <laughs> um, but uh, you know we've come closer and closer to each other's theories meaning we are pretty set on our theories but we we see the value and the efficacy and and frankly we both see the the, the points of history that could make either one of these be an accurate one, but we both hold to our certain viewpoints for certain reasons. And, uh, but when it comes to, like, uh, you know, Serebet al Khadim and the mountain of God, you know, we're, we're pretty much right on the same page there.
0: Is that the same mountain that's uh, directly opposite of Roswell? No, no. Uh,
4: that would be in, in, uh, in my book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim. Um, I wrote about how the book of Enoch... While the book of Genesis only mentions four verses about the Nephilim and hardly any mention at all, there's not even they don't cast judgment pro or con, it's just a mention, and it's a prelude to the flood of Noah story. If you go to the book of Enoch, which has 11 chapters or more dedicated to the watchers and the Nephilim, um, he talks about how they, they came down to the slopes of Mount Armon, which is current-day Mount Hermon. And it's in the north of what used to be the north of Israel. Now that's, that's of course, this mountain straddles uh, Syria and Lebanon, a very highly politicized area, the Golan Heights. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but this mountain lies on the 33rd parallel north of the equator. And if you trace the 33rd parallel all around to the very opposite spot on the other side of the planet, you end up very close to the, the, site, the crash site of Roswell, New Mexico.
0: Hmm.
4: And, of course, uh, Bill Burns... Uh, was the one who told me, and I quoted him in the book, as saying he believed this is some kind of wayline or ley line even uh, that connects the, how the earth is covered with this grid of all these connectivities between all these temple sites and important sites of antiquity and theoretical sites connected with uh, the ancient alien uh, hypothesis, things like that. And so, uh, uh, yeah, that's that mountain. Um, it talks about how 200 prefects, uh, From heaven came down and settled on the slopes of Mount Hermon and made a pact to go into human women and intermingle with them and breed with them. Uh, And and actually, it's painted sometimes in a very negative light, but the way it talks about it in that passage, it says says they fell in love with them. They chose, whomever they chose, uh, they chose these people, they cohabited with them, and they brought to them the forbidden knowledge of God. And they taught them things. That doesn't sound like a hostile takeover. Um, But uh, this is the way that the the mythology works there. And uh, I've got to say for the record where the the Nephilim are not the ones who descended. They're the offspring of those who did. And in the biblical passage, it refers to the the beings who came down as the, the sons of God, came down and intermingled with the daughters of men and had children by them. And uh, the sons of God in the Hebrew is the bene ha-elohim. And this is the sons of the Elohim, or those who are of the God of many gods, as Elohim is is defined. And by the way, the word Elohim is the name for God used almost 3,000 times in the Old Testament. And it means literally God of or God among many gods. Hmm. And uh, um, El being the name of God in the Hebrew or the Canaanite language and him being the plural suffix in Hebrew tacked onto a word to denote plurality. Uh, Just like Nephilim, the word is Nephal, and you put the him on the end, it's Nephalhim, those who came down, those who left their first estate and came to another, and and so on. And uh, so I find it very interesting that the beings who came down, and by the way, uh, uh, um, um, Enoch refers to them as the watchers, They're also referred to as the watchers in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar the king. uh, The watchers appeared to him. Um, These watchers are not angels. People for many centuries had interpreted this as angels. The problem with that, these beings who came down, they're not angels because the word angel never appears in the text anywhere. And that is the word melach or for plural uh, melachim. And uh, these, uh, it's never used. They are called B'nei Elohim, And uh, these are the sons of the Elohim. And if you go to, in, in a Bible, pick up a Bible and go to Psalm 82. And in the English, replace the word God and gods with the actual word in the Hebrew, which is Elohim. And it reads this way. It says, And Elohim stood in the midst of the Elohim, the singular and the plural, and he, singular, said to them, plural, you are all Elohim, the bright shining princes of heaven. And then he goes to pass judgment on them for something which is unnamed in the text. Now, you look back at, then, just before the flood story, the bene HaElohim elohim descend to the earth and mingle with the daughters of Adam. There is a stark contrast there, the, the sons of the Elohim and the Adam, the humans. And you go back even to the Genesis story of the Garden of Eden and the, the serpent character, who is never called the devil or Satan or Lucifer in the passage. That comes up a thousand years later. It's attributed to him, and very loosely, I might add. But the character in the Garden of Eden, in the text, his name is Nakosh. Nakosh is the serpent character. And Nakosh, by definition, means trickster, bringer of chaos, uh, bringer of knowledge, the bright shining one, the illuminator. And this bright shining one ties into the bright shining princes of heaven, who were referred to as the divine councils. So you've got these three passages in the Old Testament that all speak of the Elohim. I believe that Nakosh in the garden was one of the divine council. could very well have been Lucifer, uh, but he he is one of the Elohim, or one of the watchers. And the story in the Garden of Eden, is one of, of sexual encounter and impregnation, the, the tampering with of the bloodline of humanity from the very get-go, and it's all supported by everything that happens in the text. Uh, so I'm not just sucking it out of my thumb, but so basically what you have is when Eve births Cain and Abel, they are twins, but Cain is the first of the Nephilim. He is the son of Nakosh, and Abel is the son of Adam. And uh, that's, by the way, a medical fact that a mother can bear twins that are fathered by two different, different fathers hmm. or at different times. So I have twin daughters who are 21 years old. And the day they were born, the doctor told me, did you know that Brynn was 10 days less developed than your, her sister Abby? And I said, well, what does that mean? She said they were just conceived 10 days apart. I said, I didn't know that was possible.
1: Hmm. Uh, what, so if, what, what, what about happened. a reptile and a human together?
4: <laughs> reptile and a human together. Now, that's a, that's a theory. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hypothesis, uh, it's a notion, uh, it has turned into a great alien mythos, and the whole reptilian thing really comes from the writings of David Icke, from the writings of Zechariah Sitchin, and from extrapolation of other bits of information. <laughs> if you go back to the Anunnaki um, in the Sumerian culture, there's nothing in, the past in, in their cuneiform texts that, that pulls them out as reptilian. Uh, You'll find reptilian statuettes that are attributed to the Anunnaki. Uh, But the closest thing I have found to any kind of serpentine attribution is the parallel story to the Genesis Garden of Eden story, and that is the story of the creation of primeval man by the Anunnaki. Elil, the chief god of the Anunnaki, said, We are tired of doing our own work, of digging our own trenches, of tilling our own ground, of mining our own resources, let us therefore create primeval man to do our work for us, and he conscripts his brother god Enki, uh, who is also known in the Akkadian culture as Ea. So Enki Ea uh, uh, mates and, and, and works with the goddess, uh, and I cannot remember her name off the top of my head. <laughs> Something like that, and uh, they create primeval man, and who are enslaved to the Anunnaki to do their work for them. And eventually, there is a a human king in the tale of Atrahasis, which is in one of these cuneiform texts. And he appeals to his god Enki-Eah, Ea, is the the patron god of his city, Eridu, and says, Please uh, help us uh, bend your ear to your servant and hear my cry and my plight, O my lord, and descend down and save us from the slavery. And that's exactly what Enki-Eah does. Comes down with his his mighty warriors, and he says, I have heard your plight, and I have heard your supplications, and I will help you. And he delivers the forbidden knowledge of the gods to the humans, leads them in rebellion, teaches them how to rebel, and they rebel from Elil, and uh, they win their freedom. And for this, he and his followers are all cast to the subterranean caverns of the earth to dwell forever as punishment. Now he, Enki-Eah, at the time, dwelt in the great Abzu, the underground, the underworld sea. And he would come to the surface outside the city of Eridu into the backwaters of the Euphrates River. And he would ride his boat with his boatsmen uh, oaring the way through, and he loved the place. And it was known as the Serpent's Marsh or the Serpent's Den because uh, for obvious reasons. You go there today, it's still filled with serpents, water serpents. Hmm. And uh, it, was, it became known as, as the Serpent's Den, it became known associated with his name, Ea, Ia, Enki-Ea, Ia's den, which became known as Iaden, which became known as Eden in the Genesis story. And if you start comparing these two counts, uh, the 1,500-year gap between the writing of them, you will find that whoever wrote the book of Genesis, and I believe it was Moses, and I believe he wrote it in between 1440 and 1400 B.C., so about 1,500 years earlier, he borrowed these stories from the Sumerian culture. Look hmm. at the similarities. Over that 1,500 years, during the migration of mankind from the Fertile Crescent down into the Canaanite region, they brought their religions with them. Elil, the chief god of the, of the Anunnaki, became El of the Canaanites, and, and Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon of the, of the Hebrews, of the Israelites. Enki, Iah, during the same migration of religion and thought, became known as Iyah, became Yahweh. Of the Canaanite culture and Yahweh, Jehovah, is what that word means of the of the Israelites, and uh, the stories where ancient man was was set to dig canals, mine resources, and till the ground for the Anunnaki. In the Genesis Garden of Eden story, it says God created man and woman and placed them in the garden to till the ground and keep it for Him. And then you have, of course, Enki coming down, rising up out of the serpent's den giving the forbidden knowledge of the gods and the humans rebel. In Genesis, it's a little different. You've got the serpent character, not coming out of a serpent's den, but the serpent character, Nakosh, one of the Elohim, delivering the knowledge of God to the humans, and the humans, in essence, rebelling against God and not winning their freedom, but winning uh, eternal damnation as a result. And all the passages, the whole passage afterwards, just bears this all out. Um, and I could go on for hours, but that stories that you get about, uh, the reptilian mating with humans.
0: So it's just like a bad game of broken telephone.
4: It, it really is. You know, one thing to keep in mind is that Moses, and I believe he, I know he was a real man. I know he existed in Egyptian history. I know that he, uh, uh he wrote the first five books of the Bible. I, I believe that there's not proof for it. I believe it. Keep in mind, the first 40 years of his life, he might have been Israelite by birth, but he was Egyptian through and through. And when the Bible talks about him fleeing Egypt after murdering an Egyptian taskmaster who he saw uh, a Hebrew slave, it says he, he runs from Egypt because Pharaoh sought to take his life. And he goes to Midian and he marries the daughter of the pagan high priest in Midian. And now he's exposed to not just everything he brings with him from Egypt, all, all his religious training, all his military training, all his royal training. And I'm saying this all before providing you information why I think he had all of that. He now is exposed to the Sinaitic religions, to the Hebraic religions, the Canaanite religions, the Syrian religions, or the, I'm sorry, the uh, uh, the Sumerian religions. And this is... When, if he is indeed 80 years old, when he has his epiphany, his spiritual contact from God for the first time, this is the first time ever he becomes a a worshiper of Jehovah, is at that burning bush experience. But remember, he was the only one there, the only one who saw it, the only one to write about it. And this is what he used to carry him
0: through his experiences. Nowadays, those people get called crackpots.
4: Well, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, I look at some person who says uh, they had some, you know, uh, the Archangel Michael lives in my closet and he comes out every Thursday night and communicates with me. And I'm like, yeah, right. Uh, But, you know, that's a crackpot to me. But who am I to say the Archangel Gabriel doesn't do that? I don't know for sure. Um, I tend to gauge these people by their credibility as a person. Um, I've heard some very incredible stories from very credible people. And that then lends credence to what they have to say for me, yeah, um uh, if I have somebody tell me they saw a ghost uh who who is also a, you know a weirdo, um I have a harder time believing that than somebody who is very credentialed or is very credible in other areas of life that has the same experience it's going it's going be different for me
1: so you were getting into your your new book there really, just by
4: yes, chance yeah. there
1: with the the exodus <clears throat> reality right
4: yes. That's coming out this October. Uh, My co-author with that book was Dr. John Ward, uh, who lives over, he's a British archaeologist over there in Luxor. And we had talked about this for about two years. Uh, He was actually, I was writing the Nephilim book, and I was writing that chapter five. And I actually encountered John Ward on Facebook, of all places, the Sirius Project. I don't remember where I first saw it, but I connected with him. And I said, would love to talk to you sometime. You're an archaeologist. I want to get your take on some things. And we talked about Moses and the Exodus and found we had these different theories. And and, uh, he acted as a consultant for me on some of the Egyptological stuff in uh, my chapter on Moses, (coughs) as well as the Ogdode and a couple of other things in my first book. And uh, we vowed that we would someday write a book on this together. And, of course, uh, once uh, Reptilians was done, about this time last year, I finished up Reptilians, and uh, John and I were hot and heavy on this topic, and we approached my publisher, New Page Books, Michael Pye, my editor, and said, uh, uh, "I said, John and I would ro- like to write a book. I want you to meet John. You'll meet him at the Paradigm Symposium, and he loved the idea. And we hadn't written up a proposal, and we showed up. Uh, uh, we met uh, Michael uh, at the at the symposium. We talked about it. John just charmed the socks off of Michael, and uh, um. Uh, Michael was very intrigued. He says, write it up, guys. Send me a proposal. And we sent it to him, and it got approved, of course. They said, this is a little different than the kind of books we write. But John and I said, look, we're writing about a biblical mystery, but this is not just a biblical mystery. This is an historical mystery. Uh, It's one of those earth mysteries uh, um, that has a biblical tie-in, and that's the way we approached it. Hmm. And uh, I took a more or less biblical point of view, saying uh, I think the Bible has efficacious history, and I think that we can substantiate things. And where you cannot establish—well, let let me put it this way. There is absolutely zero historical proof to prove that Moses ever existed or the Exodus ever took place. However, there is secondary archaeological and historical data— that makes the entire case plausible historically. And this is the basis by which we went. went. And when you start looking for the plausibility, you will start finding that there's a hell of a lot of evidence out there that, that suggests these things actually took place.
1: This must have got along pretty good over that, that month and writing the book because you're continuing, oh, yeah. you're continuing on on other projects now.
4: Yes, we are. We're, we're doing some other things. We've got something I can't announce yet because we promised we'd, uh, we'd launch this on somebody else's radio show next week. Uh, Cassidy O'Connor with KGRA Radio. And, uh, but let's put it this way. Uh, John and I had an amazing journey, an amazing adventure, an amazing expedition for a month in Egypt. Um let me ask you fellows what would you if you had the opportunity to take that trip and see those things um under the guidance of people who wrote about them and explored them would that sound like an intriguing trip to you
1: yeah i mean put it this way i spent a month in egypt when i was 20 years old traveling around with uh, a bunch of you know a ragtag crew of people i had met on my journey you know some americans some like just a bunch of kids really and we went yeah. all the way down to uh, to Aswan and, and back for a month, and I also spent two months in in Israel, just uh, just near that mountain you were talking about in uh, the Golan Heights, yeah. there at a kibbutz. So for me, experiencing Egypt like that, which had a, a bunch of challenges along the way, you know, logistical and, and all sure. kinds of other things, I would love to to see it um, along with some guys like you and and a small, tight little group of what, 10 or 12 people and you guys touring around and getting like kind of the, the, the back uh, backstage kind of pass to, to all these sites because there's so much to do there.
4: And let me just say, um, uh, there might be an opportunity like that that comes up four times next Ah. year, but uh, uh, maybe four times, maybe not. And uh, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, so John and I have some things we're working on together. We're going to we're starting to look at a new book together. We're, we're not quite sure what our focus is yet, but we've got so many different topics that we're working on. Um, let me say also that I am working with uh, an agent and a, and a publicist right now to take my academic theories of Moses and the pharaohs surrounding him and convert that into a trilogy of fictional novels. And uh, <coughs> there's a high probability that that's going to be picked up huh. somewhere along the way here. So uh, that will be kind of fun, taking the things I wrote about and fictionalizing it, putting it into a fictional setting, filling in the gaps, uh, telling narrative, having characters interact with each other. Uh, maybe this is a, a really good time where I can share a little bit of information of just who I think Moses was. Yeah, sure, yeah. And yeah, why I... Great. Why I think this is who he was. Now, I of course hinge pin all of this on a biblical verse in the Old Testament.
0: I have my there own a, theory, actually. I'll bounce uh, that off you after afterward. All right. After we're done. All right.
4: <laughs> well, here's my theory. On, there is a verse in First Kings six one, which is during the reign of Solomon. Who is there's There's dispute over whether Solomon actually existed or not. I believe he did, uh, but th- there's still dispute over that. But The verse says, and on the day that Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, this is temple one by archaeological terminology, temple one in Jerusalem, which we know existed. It was the 480th year since the Exodus. That's a hinge pin date. And that is also a rock solid date because temple one, while there's some dispute over it, um, is dated to, to the median date is 966 BC for the founding of that temple, give or take three to seven years in either direction, which is not a big amount of time. <clears throat> so your margin of error is at best at any time, four years. And uh, so he, uh, uh, the Bible verse says this. Now, if you do your date from 966 B.C., the median date, you end up at 1446 for the date of the Exodus by that verse. Now, if that history is to be trusted in the biblical account, you go back to 1446 in Egyptian chronology. And by the way, another one of the difficulties in dating anything in Egypt is the fact that there are four or five different chronologies of the kings that jump all over the board by 20 to 40 years. And so you could be off by 40 years on something or 20 years by something or off by a couple of years on something. And there are several different uh, chronologies that date this. The, The accepted chronology is the Oxford chronology, even though there are others that have very efficacious points to them. Uh, this theory falls roughly within the Oxford chronology. You got to move things around a little bit and allow for some other things. But during this time, if the Exodus took place in 1445 to 1446 BC, and if Moses was indeed 80 years old at the time, you can backdate to 1526 or thereabouts as the date, the year of his birth. Now, sitting on the throne at this time is a king named Tutmosis I. He had a daughter, a single daughter at the time in 1526 B.C., and her name was Hatshepsut. And Hatshepsut, her title was Pharaoh's daughter. Um, And if you go to the biblical passage, that's all they say about her. They say, and Pharaoh's daughter did this, and Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in the Nile. That's actually her title in Egyptian history. Now, she is the woman who found Moses in the Nile, and by the way, even that passage is a little tainted. Um, it doesn't say she floated him in a basket down the expanse of the River Nile. It says that she placed him in a basket, smeared with pitch, and put him amongst the reeds on the bank of the river. And uh, this is where Pharaoh's daughter found, them. I, I found him. And I happen to believe that this was very well planned by Moses' mother. Um, there is... A lot of people. There are a lot of people out there that say, "Oh, this this isn't true. It's obviously just another retelling of the Osiris myth." And how many figures in history, great figures, were floated down the Nile in baskets that predate Moses? Well, here's what I think. I don't think that's that's a coincidence. I think that Moses' mother, his slave mother, did this by plan, by absolute uh, uh, playing into the the mythology of of Osiris, and she knew exactly who was going to be there at the bank of the Nile, and she had her daughter follow the basket down uh, to that spot on the Nile, or bring it down, bring it, wading it through the, through the shallows, and I believe this was, this was a meticulous plan to have the daughter of the pharaoh find this young baby in a basket and have her immediately latch onto the Osiris story, which was part of their religious mythology. And so this young woman, she's a, about 7 to 10 years old at the time in 1526, which would make her too young to be an adoptive mother. So what does the Bible say? she sent him back to his mother to be weaned, and about four or five years passes before she is old enough to claim him. Then he comes back to her and is raised in the palace the rest of his life. <clears throat> and I believe that this is a young man named Senenmut. The, she names him Senenmut. Senenmut is a historical figure in Egypt. He was the um, uh, tutor to Hatshepsut's daughter, Neferuri. Now, keep in mind, tutors back then were not just school teachers or substitute teachers looking for a summer job. They were usually high royal officials. They were somebody who had military experience. They were grounded in the royal family. Now, Senenmut, his name... It says he was born of commoners in Egyptian history. Names the commoners, but doesn't say anything else about his family. It says that Hatshepsut named him Senenmut, which means, by definition, mother's brother. I, your mother, and also the mother of Egypt, elevating you to the status of brother to me with the gods. So she names him Senenmut. She also bestows on this young man 92 royal titles, she makes him the grand royal architect of Egypt, and he builds her temple and other, other amazing structures. She names him the, the, the uh, uh, grand vizier of Egypt, which is basically second only to Pharaoh. He has all the power of the Pharaoh except the throne itself. She also names him the hereditary crown prince of Egypt. Now, keep in mind, he has this glorious history with Hatshepsut. Um, he leaves behind nine statues of himself, with him caressing the young Nefruiri, uh, holding her in loving embrace. Um, he and and, and uh, he, his name was on the walls of her temple. His tomb, his big glorious painted tomb, is out at the northwest corner of the complex of her tomb, uh, of her temple, dierheil Um He disappears completely from Egyptian history, with no trace, no evidence, and no mention. No body in any of the, of the tomb he left behind. Three tombs, all of them unfinished, all of them unused. Uh, there's no body. There's no uh, anything about his disappearance. And within a year, Hatshepsut dies. Um, there's one thing he inscribed on the walls of one of his tomb. He refers to himself in his various royal titles, and he also refers to himself as the sole friend to the queen Hatshepsut. He was very close to her. Now, he disappears, and you'll never guess the, uh, the year he disappears. By the biblical chronology, Moses turns 40 in the year 1486 B.C. Lo and behold, this is right around the same year that Senenma disappears from the scene. Huh. And there is a the story in the Bible that says that Moses murdered an Egyptian taskmaster. This is not so far-fetched when you think that those stories are embellished and they also leave out a lot of information. <coughs> Perhaps Moses murdering the Egyptian taskmaster was nothing more than Senenmut, the grand royal architect, taking out a taskmaster that held political—that was part of the political party of Tutmosis III, the deposed um, royal uh, um, uh, co-regent of Egypt with Hatshepsut uh well he was 3 years old when her husband died Tutmosis the 2nd and she and her his her stepson Tutmosis the 3rd is the rightful heir to the throne but he's only 3 years old at the time so she becomes his co-regent and within 6 years completely deposes him and she takes over as pharaoh of Egypt and reigns for another 1920 years and by the time that uh, um Tutmosis is 23. She's made him the the uh, um, general of all her armies. Now, you would think that a man who has the armies has the throne, but he never forcibly took the throne from her. She was very loved by her people, but there was political factions, political infighting all throughout, and there was always the tit-for-tat, knocking off whom you can knock off. And uh, after her death, it is said that Tutmosis the third. When he rose to the throne that he was the one responsible for removing all her images from her tomb, her her temple, from everything in Egypt. But we come to find out through more recent discoveries that it was really 40 years later after he takes the throne that his son, Amenhotep II, who I place as the pharaoh of the Exodus, is the one that says, I am removing all her images. And, you know, who else's images he also removed at the same time? Senenmut, and if you look at your chronology, if Senenmut or Moses, as I think he was, disappears a year—the year that Hatshepsut dies, right around 1486 BC—and he's 40, and 40 years later, under the reign of Amenhotep II, the son of Tutmosis III, who would have been the pharaoh seeking his life. By the way, let me jump back before I get into that. Remember how the Bible says when Moses fled? He says Pharaoh was seeking his life for taking the life of this Egyptian taskmaster. I asked these guys in Egypt, these these officials, I said if there was a a member of the royal house who murdered an Egyptian taskmaster over slaves, what would be the repercussion? And they both said, they kind of looked and raised their eyebrows and shook their heads at nothing. It would have been whitewashed. I said, so why was Moses' life being sought by the pharaoh if he was indeed this man and was a royal prince of Egypt? And he kind of shrugged his shoulders. I said, do you think it might be because of the political infighting, the factions? Think of the court of Elizabeth I of England and how Robert Dudley, how uh, – Uh, The Duke of Norfolk and all these guys were all these political factions trying to vie for her throne. This is exactly what was going on. But it was not overt. Otherwise, it would have been rebellion. They'd have been beheaded. And some of them were. (coughs) Think of the same setting in in ancient Egyptian history. Here's Hatshepsut with the deposed monarch leading the armies. But they have all this political factioning and infighting going on. What if, and this is pure speculation, but if, if Senenmut... The, the, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, if he is the chief architect and he got into some some uh, dispute with a taskmaster, now remember, a taskmaster wasn't just necessarily the lowliest guy beating a slave with a stick. He may have been somebody set over hundreds of slaves and over hundreds of taskmasters. This may have been an official. And if he murdered that guy because perhaps it was one of Tutmosis III's men faction the political faction that was against Hatshepsut um, this could be great grounds for Tutmosis the to say i'm going to i'm going to get this asshole and i think this is what happened when moses flees egypt now he runs and 40 years later comes back and says let my people go and it's with the son of tutmosis the third who was taking his life remember what god said at the burning bush moses said I can't go back there. Pharaoh is seeking my life. This is 40 years later. And so you know there's more to it than just simple being an official who murdered a taskmaster. There was more to this story that we're not told. And God says, all those who sought your life are dead. Go back. And he goes back to Egypt, and it's Amenhotep II. He leads the Exodus, destroys and sacks Egypt in the process. What does Amenhotep II do? He says... Uh, when, when his father Tutmosis III took the throne, there was a papyrus at his dedication. Uh, he had been deposed for some 20 years, and he talks about Hatshepsut, his stepmother, as that lying, deceitful bitch of a woman. And here's his son now saying, "You started removing her images. I am going to finish the job for that lying, deceitful bitch of a woman, and her grand vizier, her her her, her hereditary crown prince." who fled when he murdered one of your guys, and he wipes out every one of Senenmut's images as well. And uh, so these are, while these are circumstantial things. I get into all this stuff in the book. It's circumstantial, but it fits the time, it fits the picture, and it makes the story historically plausible. And this is who I think Moses was. He was this man, Senenmut, and I believe Senen was very closely tied to Hatshepsut. And when he flees, she's dead within a year. Wow. And, uh, and it's an amazing story.
1: Hmm. Yeah, you've got my mind spinning right now trying to, trying to keep up with you and follow all this.
4: There's one thing I want to I add to this. This is something I found, and I, I have to credit David Roll with this information. I, I read it in an article that he wrote. He's an Egyptologist and has written a lot of books about uh, biblical and Egyptian history. And uh, he talks about, remember at the burning bush that Moses says to God in the story, he says, after it's all said and done, he's got to go. He says, whom shall I tell these people sent me? And God says, he basically says, "It's none of your damn business what my name is, because I think he was looking for the private name of God. That's a totally different story. Mm -hmm. The way he phrased the question was, if you know the private name of a deity, you would have power over it. And he says, so whom should I say sent me? What's your name? And God basically says, none of your goddamn business what my name is. Uh, and he says, you tell them I am sent you. I am that I am, he says. And we always learn in seminary that that's, uh, that was a title for God. And he says, I am that I am they speak of. It was one of the titles used for God. Well, now, David Roll had done some linguistic research into the I am. And while I can't quote it all, I, I quote him in my book and establish the case for this. But I found this, this blew my mind when I read this and looked into the linguistics and verified it. Um, the I am being used there is Moses using a play on words. Now, remember I told you Moses was thoroughly Egyptian at this point. He's not a Yahweh or Jehovah worshiper. He's not a Jew. Judaism didn't exist until he created it. Um, and now he's been in Sinai for 40 years, learning all these Sumerian religions and the, and the Sinatic religions, the Canaanite religions. And he had a play on words here when he used that, I am that I am. What it literally means is this. That I am broken down linguistically relates to the old Sumerian for, guess what? Enki. Hmm. So in essence, what God is saying, I am that Enki they speak of. Hmm. And that blew my mind. Now, I don't know if God is saying, I am Enki, or if he's just saying, they speak of the God Enki, that's who I am. I'm the real God behind the false one. Right. I don't know if that's what's being said there, but I thought it was very telling that 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 God in that story, and Moses wrote it, I am that Enki they
0: speak of. That was exactly <clears throat> my theory.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh, hold on. I lost my headset. You can uh, hear me, but I can't hear you. There we go. All
1: right. Okay. So what's your theory then, Darren? That was pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> uh
0: I don't know if I want to get into it on the podcast. It kind of goes down the line of uh, the L. Ron Hubbard sort of angle. Sure. Sure. Um, well, whatever. Who gives a fuck, right? Yeah. Get, get into it. <laughs> yeah well I, 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 think, I figure maybe after he got banished from Egypt or however it happened, he was you know feeling kind of down, and he went into the mountains for forty years and studied these all these other ancient religions, and then maybe he figured, you know what the hell why don't I, I just go start my own religion?
4: Well, I think that's exactly what he did. Um, I believe he founded Judaism on Egyptian religion and Sumerian religion and all these other religions that he came in contact with. Uh, you find, uh, just in talking about the stories, as I mentioned, the, the, the Garden of Eden story, how that relates to the Sumerian story. He took and he altered the facts to fit and uh, created Judaism.
0: And that pretty much sprung into the, the three major religions of today.
4: yes. And uh, a good example that I use in the book on the reptilians, by the way, is Muhammad. And I say this with all due respect, uh, not wanting a fatwa on my head, but uh, Muhammad was a, a wealthy son of a family, and they had all these factional tribes of Arabs that were not united. And they all worshipped at Mecca, but they worshipped 360 different gods. And Muhammad had as a mentor, and this is historical fact, he had a Jewish man and a Christian man that were mentors of his. And they said, if you ever hope to unify these splintered tribes, you have to start by going monotheistic. You have to do away with polytheism. And so what he ended up doing, he took 359 of this pantheon of gods and discarded them. And kept Allah. or rele- And he kept Hamal, which he renamed as Allah. And he said, now <clears throat> Allah is our one monotheistic God. Hmm. And he created Islam out of whole cloth hmm. to unify his people. And I think this is exactly what Moses did. <clears throat> he led the ragtag remnants of an enslaved Israelite people who had been in country for 400 years, many of those years as as, as indentured, uh, not indentured, as, as uh, forced labor slaves, and he frees them they don't give two shits about Moses, you can find as the Exodus goes on. Uh, they're out of there. Now, let me ask you guys a question. If you had seen and experienced under a, a charismatic leader the ten plagues of Egypt, you'd seen the wonders of God displayed uh, in full force, and it, and it releases you from bondage. You're, you're holed up against, backed up against the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh descending on you. And your leader stretches his hand across the waters. And the waters part, as the Bible says, a wall on the left and a wall on the right. Which, by the way, there's also the little phrase that we that we gloss over a lot. It says, and Moses stretched the rod of, of God over the waters. And a strong east wind blew all night and dried the ground. And the waters, then they added, and the waters stood on the right and the left. Hmm. And then you cross through that. And then you see those waters close on the encroaching army. And you're free. Would you a week later be building an idol to a golden calf? Probably or would you be not. worshiping the God that uh, your leaders said? Uh, remember, uh, remember when Moses went up to the mountain and he left the people all down on the, on the ground floor? And he's gone up there for 40 days. I believe, by the way, it was an active temple at that site. The temple of Hathor was at the top of Serebet el-Khadim. I believe Moses went up there to commune with these priests who were housed there. And if you go up there, the whole place is steelies inscribed on both sides. They look like tall gravestones ranging in size from a foot tall to eight feet tall. And then you see these piles of thousands of years old ruins of these shards of these steelies that were inscribed on both sides and broken and cast off in a, in a pile. What does it say Moses did when he came down with the tablets of the law? It says it was two steely inscribed on both sides. And he comes down and they're worshiping the golden calf. But remember when he's up there, what did the people say? They said, now this is a vernacular translation. They say, uh, where is this man Moses who led us out of Egypt? He's gone up in the mountain. Build us a God that we may worship him. And Aaron casts the golden calf. Now in the vernacular, this translates. They're basically saying, hey, where is this guy Moses? Moses. He let us out, and now he's gone. He's been up in this mountain for 40 days. And uh, they basically had no real connection to him. This is, And they're complaining. You know why they're complaining? They have no connection to Moses. They have no connection to his God, Jehovah, or
0: Yahweh. This they're, is not their God. They're just happy to be the get the fuck out of Egypt.
4: Right. They're happy to be out, except Except they're they're moaning the whole time. Oh, we had leeks and onions by the Nile, and out here we have dirt to eat. Uh, you know, we have no water, and uh, uh, and they're doing all this complaining. You know why I think that is so? I think it's because the events that we read about all these miracles are perhaps a bit embellished. I think it actually happened. There were things that took place, and uh, yet... And I do not want to, for a minute, discount anyone's faith. I do not want to discount the miraculous powers of God. If God exists as he says he did, did he have the ability to do all those things? Sure. But the reaction of the people seems to indicate that they saw a lot less than the story of what we are told. And uh, uh, and maybe they didn't experience it firsthand. Hmm. But uh, they walk out of there, and uh, uh, they're complaining right away. And so there's some some very interesting uh, uh, stuff that goes on with those people. So Moses created Judaism out of everything that he knew and brought to the table. And the big question is, is this founded on proto-religion that existed prior to the Sumerians, and this is God, very God of the Bible? Or did Moses ascribe all these things to Jehovah?
0: And that's the big question. There's a lot of crossover with uh, some ancient flood myths. I think uh, I remember yeah. talking to you at Paradigm Symposium about uh, about them, and I did a bunch of research myself. And uh, um, what are your thoughts on uh, on uh, flood myths? How many did you say there were? Over seven hundred. There's,
4: there's there's over six hundred that I know of, and I haven't read them all. Uh, but there's over six hundred different flood accounts in, from antiquity that uh, ranging from major cultural stories, major religious stories, down to tribal stories. And uh, that's how you get so many of them. But to common to most of them is the, the element of a race that descended from the heavens or came from somewhere else, a non-human entities or spirit beings that impregnated human women and had offspring. And the, the major deity or the god or some higher power uh, more sophisticated power was attempting to wipe them out. Hmm. And the flood was the, was, the, was the means by all these mythologies. Hmm. So you have crossovers there. Now, we don't know which ones. If we step out of the box of Judeo-Christianity, we say that's just one of the stories. Um, this is one of the accounts. Um, uh, and the big question of universal flood uh, versus uh, localized flood Versus uh, local to the area, versus whatever it might have been. Those are the big questions. But of course, in order to do that, you have to you have to step out of the box of the orthodoxy of Scripture, of God breathed Scripture. And so that's where the problem comes in for those within those faith structures, uh, which I come from. Uh, it's that we believe certain things by faith, and there's such magnificently glorious mythological tales. That we don't realize how mythological they are until we step away for a for a minute, back at it, um, uh, and, and I think that's that's where all these stories come. And they all they all correspond. And as I said uh, to George Norrie, I remember this was on coast to coast last year on this topic, and I said the one thing that is certain, George, I said, is that mankind went through some amazing interruption of the bloodlines very early on from the get go. Hmm. And whether it be ancient alien or non-human entity or spirit beings or gods, uh, this is what happened.
0: Hmm. Have you done much uh, research into, into native American uh, folklore or creation not, and spirituality?
4: Not too much. I, I, I've, I dug into uh, just one tribal story of the, the Lakota story of creation. And, uh, it talks about how the, the, the first man and woman, and they, they had a name. Uh, their names, I can't remember off the top of my head. There's something like like, like, like uh, Wavatanga or something like that. It had that ring to it um, that they ascended up out of the subterranean caverns of the earth and saw the sunlight for the first time on the day of creation. And uh, <clears throat> they had a daughter as the first child. Um, and I don't remember her name, but she was being, she was fallen in love with by the god Ectope, who was the correlation to the serpent in the garden character. He was the trickster character, the bringer of chaos. And, uh, he impregnates the daughter and she has, I think it's triplets. Something common, by the way, to most of these first family stories you'll find in different creation stories, that was the Lakota story in a nutshell, um... Is that there were multiples either born to the children of the first family or to the first couple themselves twins, triplets, quadruplets, quintuplets. And uh, this is mentioned in all these different uh, cases, mythological stories. And uh, it's no different with Adam and Eve, they bore Cain and Abel.
0: I'm gonna have to take a picture of the world. I'm gonna have to take a picture of the world. I'm gonna have to take a picture of the world. I'm gonna have to take a picture of the world. I'm gonna have to take a picture of the world. The family of the first 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 of the
3: first of the 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 first
1: of the first 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 of the Hey, I wanted to jump back to the reptilian book for a bit. Um, Sure. I've got this on my mind. I was uh, visiting with a friend of mine, and she was telling me about her uh, ayahuasca experience and how she actually saw a pretty big dragon's head, like, right in front of her face. And then I didn't tell her—she didn't know at that time that I had sort of listened to a bunch of tales and been following some of this, you know, people doing ayahuasca. You know, Mike has been all over that, too, and— so you hear about these stories all over the world about people on hallucinogens, either you know psilocybin or DMT, seeing reptiles or dragons. So I wonder how far how, how far back that goes. Like, could we even you know surmise that uh, Eden the forbidden fruit of Eden was uh, a magic mushroom or something, and uh, you know the snake was a massive hallucination. I mean, did you ever think about any of that uh, while you're researching your book? I-
4: I sure did because every culture seems to have some kind of serpentine representation. Yeah, um, and uh, you know you can go through the list and name off the major ones just, just in a heartbeat. Uh, but uh, uh, to surmise certain things, here here is something that I have that I've had to get into of necessity. When I, I am one of those guys who you could call a true believer, but I try to temper it with uh, with an academic approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I have grown over-weary with the uh, um, surmising and speculation and, oh, this is what I feel about spirit. <laughs> you know. And, and I only mock it to, to, to say, not that I don't believe it's, it's genuine with some people, but that I would think the vast majority of people who say things like that and have experiences are nutcases. Um, I even had the opportunity to talk to, when I was talking to Whitley Strieber last year, who wrote Communion. Um, I had said to him, you know, Whitley, you are a crackpot, you know that. And, uh, I said, you are somebody who has had an experience that is real to you, but nobody else had that experience. And because nobody else experienced that, you're the crackpot. And he kind of laughed at that. And he said, yeah, I guess so. And, uh, uh, and I said, I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion, but that's the way you are perceived by certain people because that's your experience. Now, all these experiences, people who see uh, 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 I can't even say it at the moment. Ayahuasca. I uh, uh, people who see reptilians, see who, people who see shape-shifting. I can't, for the life of me, say that they are wrong and that they're not seeing those things. However, I would dare say that you cannot base hypothesis on those anecdotal experiences. You could get a hundred of those experiences. And the same thing will happen with the thousands of people who have seen ghosts. Uh, you still can't prove that there's a ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same way with this. That is not material that can be used to prove a case because it's too um, right. And I hate to say that. I happen to believe a lot of these experiences are real. But you cannot prove the case on the basis of them.
1: Yeah, some people so, might be shocked that your book is, is not sort of like that David Icke-style book. Where, right. You know, I, it, I, it, is, it is a sort of a balanced look at just you know, the history of the reptilians. You're not saying that this is the case or that's the case.
4: Well, I, I started off the book differently than I ended it. Yeah. I was about you know, not very far into it when I said, you know what? There is so much BS out there. Um, I can't trace that. Because there's not, there's no source point. You go to the internet and you'll find thousands of sites that tell the same exact story about reptilian race that came from another star system and settled here and bred here. You can't prove it. And and most of these, not most. I haven't found a single site yet that does not that does not, or a single account that does not, or that gives me source material. Where do you draw your sources? They don't. They extrapolate information from surmising from their feelings about things, uh, and so on. And that is the worst way to build a case. And so I had to, of necessity in this book, step out to the the more mythological look at it Mm -hmm. and say, what we see is alien mythos surrounding reptilians today. Mm -hmm. While it might be true and there might be something to it, there is no case for it that can be proven. Therefore, it has to fall into the realm of modern mythology. And uh, I got some critics of the book that really were very unhappy with me. I don't know anything. And this is a bunch of bullshit that he I mean, Blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and because they wanted to hear more facts about reptilians.
1: And they don't exist. Yeah. It's hard to deny the, the connection, though, with, with people from all over the world in all different cultures, cultures seeing the sim, same type of thing. Right?
4: Exactly. Exactly. Right. This is where I said, like with the uh, Nephilim in that book, I said – the, while there is no direct evidence that, that this happened, the over uh, what's the word I'm looking for the overabundance of cultural tales that speak of these kinds of beings tells me that when you boil it all down, there's a common thread out there, and that there is uh, that there is a kernel of truth to the mythology. And so the same with the reptilians. I don't know where they came from. We have all this mythology placed out there. I don't find any ancient resource that says they came from the star system of Draco. I find that in modern translation, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't find that in any ancient text anywhere. Where do they get this material? Well, I channeled it through some, some alien, reptilian. It's like, well, thank you very much. Thanks for playing. Um, channeling somebody does not give me solid information. I might believe it's true, depending on the credibility of the individual who channeled, but then I have to say, is channeling a valid means to to support historical and critical data?
1: It's not.
0: Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge supporter of channeling myself. Me either. Like to say. I'm
1: I'm a little bit more on the the believer side of that. I've I've seen some stuff live that it was pretty uh it was pretty incredible. <laughs> But, I you um, see,
4: and I, I can be a tr- I can be a true believer very easily because I've seen a lot of weird shit in my life.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I appreciate your your stance, though, and and how you straddle the fence. Like I, even though I'm probably a little bit more on the believer side than than Darren, for example, I think we're both pretty pretty much in the middle, and you know, a small ass skeptic or sort of a yes, you know, it's but it's tough. Sometimes I wonder if uh, it's easier just to jump on one side or the other, you know, because uh, sometimes I feel like if I'm a little too skeptical, I might limit my experience.
4: I, I got to tell you there, I have had experiences that I can't write about and be, and, and be accepted as a critical thinker. Yeah. They're my personal spiritual yeah. experiences. There's yeah. something that happened to me in Egypt, uh-huh. um, that John knows about. And I, I cannot name the names of the people involved in this right now. Right. It's, it's, it's sensitive and it's, it's, uh, I haven't gotten permission to say names but suffice it to say, you know who my candidate is for Moses. Um, there was somebody who passed away recently, and it hit me very hard. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know why it hit me as, as hard as it did. And uh, um, I struggled with that for a while. And then I went off to Egypt a couple of weeks later. And uh, um, I was told by by, uh, by somebody that, who is a, a shaman who is very... Um, credible in my book. And I trust this person implicitly. And they said, I think you and this person who passed away have a connection in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And, and he said, I believe that uh, you may have even been connected And here. It is past lives.
1: Yeah.
4: And if it wasn't this person who I trusted saying it, I would have thrown it in the bullshit can immediately because I hear so many people that say, especially of people who die. Oh, we were connected. You were connected to him in a past life. That 's why you 're grieving and, and and you know to me that 's the bullshit can uh, because i can 't prove it i can 't qualify it or quantify it, but so I go off to Egypt and i 'm standing at the tomb of sentiment, and i 'm all by myself. John and Maria had gone up to the main road. This is down if you 're facing at shepsut's temple um, there's to the to the west in front of you, behind her temple, and to the north on the right side of you, there 's these sheer cliff faces, craggy cliff faces going up a hundred feet and more. And, uh, um, down in the, 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 what would you call it? You're facing on the main road, facing the temple. And you look down in the, 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 the land drops away and then it rises up into the cliff walls. And that's where sentiment's tomb is. So we went down in there. We're standing outside his tomb and I stood there uh, all alone for a couple of minutes. And I I said out loud, rather nonchalantly, it was nothing. I wasn't trying to conjure anybody or anything like that. But I think I was lighting a cigarette as I said this. And I said, so, Senenmut, are you Moses, really? And I said, Moses, are you Senenmut? And out of left field, I was hit with this powerful, God, I can't call it anything but a force that nailed me. And I began weeping, this, this weeping just like as when this friend died. And, I, and it was uncontrollable. I'm standing there in the hot desert sun with my tears rolling off my face, dripping into the sand at my feet, just like a fountain. And I thought, this is unbelievable. I, I, I remember I actually said out loud, and pardon my language, but I said out loud, I said, what the fuck? And, uh, and I said, why am I crying? Why is this affecting me this way? And then I I, uh, I even said out loud, okay, what trick of my emotions is messing with my psychology right now that this is happening? I'm flailing my arms. I'm talking to no one. <laughs> and every time I tried to turn away, this wave would hit me again, this emotion. And I could not gain control of it. Wow. And it took me a, a while. And I finally came up top. And there were John and Maria were over about 50 feet away over on the road with the government official who had taken us up to the sentiment tune and uh, up on the cliff face, and uh, I turned my back to them, and I'm, I'm a guy. I didn't want everybody to see me crying and all puffy-faced and all of that, and so I turn back, and I walk over to the edge of this little cliff that drops down into the area where Sentiment's tomb is, and i it's just standing there with my hands on my hips, and I pull down my hat over my face a little bit and just trying to regain, and when I look down, in there, it hit me again, and I'm standing there weeping, and, uh, and I'm not sure why. And uh, then, of course, I hear John coming over. And I go, oh, great, here we go. <laughs> and uh, he's saying something, let's go get some coffee, old boy. And and uh, he comes up and he goes, oh, my. He looks at me and says, you've had something happen. And uh, he reaches up with his finger, actually wiped a, a tear off Aww. of my cheek with his finger. And it was kind of a tender moment there. And uh, I said, I'm OK. And I, I, I said, it was weird. And he says, look this way. And I looked at him and he snapped a picture of me. He was there for posterity. <laughs> Scotty crying. And uh, then, of course, Maria came over and kind of chided him mildly and said, Scotty, you need to go back down there and ask for clarity. And she grabbed Jarm by the arm, and they went off to have coffee. And I uh, walked back down there, and I sat down there for quite a while. And I wrote about it and uh, stuffed my pockets full of cinnamon tomb sand and uh, brought that home with me. Hmm. And uh, now, fast forward to several weeks later, and I'm talking to the wife of this friend of mine who had died. And I said, I wanted to be very sensitive about this, but I said, I I need to tell you about uh, the way his death uh, affected me. And uh, I told her. And then I said, there's something else. I said, when I was in Egypt, I was told that there might be a connection. And I said, this didn't occur to me until after the fact. But then I told her about the experience at Sentiments Tomb. And uh, she said, oh my, she said, I got to tell you something. She said, we were studying together the relationship between Senenmut and Hatshepsut for over a while before he died.
1: Wow. And wow.
4: she said he also believed he was a reincarnation of Senenmut, if not the reincarnation, at least an overlapping energy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then she said, now, what day did this happen to you at Senenmut's tomb? And I picked up my journal. I said it was Tuesday, February 4th mid-afternoon, and she said, oh my, she said, I happened to be somewhere, and his brother and I saw his apparition for a brief second, and he moved something on that same afternoon. And she said, the strongest sighting I've ever seen of him since his death. Oh, and wow. uh, And to me, that left me with more questions than answers, but it also answered some things for me on a non-academic level, on that purely... You know what I felt like? I felt like uh, um, the movie version probably portrays this better, but remember the, the book in the movie, Contact, by Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the movie, she's the scientist fighting the faith issue all the way through this movie, science versus faith. Then she has something that she has to accept only by faith because she can't prove it. Yeah, This is exactly what I felt I was at that moment. I felt I have hit an element of faith that I cannot prove, but I cannot deny it. Yeah. And uh, so this, for me, established a spiritual, what would you call it, a synchronicity, a verification that I was on the right path.
0: Yeah.
4: And somebody was telling me so. Amazing. And, uh, uh, so, and there's been many other things, spiritual things, connected to that since that just have me, as, as much as I like to play the academic in certain aspects, uh, I am fully convinced that there is a spiritual realm that's at play here as well.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd have to agree with that 100%. Um, I I don't personally believe that it has to be written down in a book or anything like that, but I I believe that everyone can find it kind of within themselves.
4: Why do you think these old patriarchs, when we think biblically, why were they always, after their spiritual experience, which we can read in two minutes in in the passage about them in the Bible, they went for... Decades sometimes with never hearing from God again. And why were they always at such a quandary? Why did they make so many mistakes trying to make things happen? Because they were trying to play off of that one experience, that one epiphany. Um, And they made mistakes along the way because of it. Um, I think this is what we're all left with. I, I wrote a little article for Intrepid Magazine at Christmas a couple years ago where I talked about Joseph and Mary and the birth of Jesus. And remember what happened in that story? This is just a rabbit trail that popped into my mind, so it's worth talking about. What happened in that story? She's pregnant, and it ain't his kid. And they're not married yet. They're betrothed, which by first-century Judean uh, Jewish custom was as good as marriage, just without the legalities yet. And uh, they had to be betrothed for a year, and she comes up pregnant. And what does it say? Joseph has the right to haul her before the Sanhedrin or the Jewish court and possibly even have her stoned for adultery. But what does he do? It says he's gravely disappointed. It says, and he sought to put her away or divorce her from this betrothal privately. Now, I think that showed that he had a great love for her. What what do people who love each other, when they find out the other person cheated on them, uh, even if that person is asking for forgiveness, and wants to keep the marriage going. What does that person do? They love them, but that—imagine that grave disappointment, that that shaking of the chest that comes along when you realize that this betrayal took place to you, and you try to compensate and overcome that. And uh, many times, people don't. It's such a break of trust that they can't go on, and they divorce. Same thing happened with Joseph. There, he's going to put her away quietly, but he's not going to. He doesn't want to make a public spectacle. I think it's also because of the, the embarrassment factor for him. But then, lo and behold, what happens? He has a dream one night. And who appears to him in the dream but the angel of the Lord, which is another name for God. And God says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child is mine. And he is the Messiah. And he wakes up with this glorious resolved that his wife is now bearing the Messiah, the long sought after Messiah. And I can imagine Joseph waking up in the morning with this amazing dream and he's on cloud nine. God just spoke to me. And by the time he's poured his first cup of coffee and he's standing in front of his unshuttered window, watching the sunrise, scratching his hairy ass, sipping at his coffee going now, wait a minute. Was that really God that spoke to me, or was that just a dream? And so you know what Joseph did? He acted by faith. He said, I'm going to operate as if that was a true thing. And I don't think God ever spoke to him again. I think there's some that God told him to flee to Egypt uh, when the baby was small um, and so on. But this is a guy who operated when his natural defense against the unknown probably told him, flee from that. hmm And yet he operated by faith. So I think this is what we do with all this stuff, um, is uh, uh, reptilians, Nephilim, Moses, the the Exodus, the plagues. We look at all this stuff and we say, I can believe that stuff, but eh, wait a minute. And and did Moses do the same thing? Uh, Did he, there were, do you know why, remember, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land 40 years after the Exodus? Because he kept equating himself with God. He kept saying, "Why do we have to do this for you?" He elevated him to the status of himself to the status of guess what? Think Pharaoh, brother of the gods. What was sentiment called by Hatshepsut? Mother's brother. You are now an equal with me as a brother to the gods. Hmm. This is why in Nephilim I call the chapter about Moses the Pharaoh God of Israel. I think that he was establishing himself. There was a passage where it says, "It says and Moses." And uh, uh, God descended on Moses' tent like a cloud and spoke to Moses face to face as a man talks to his friend. But then nine verses later in the same chapter, Moses writes, But no man can live, can see God's face and live. What's that contradiction all about? I don't think it was a contradiction at all. I think Moses was saying, No man can see God's face and live, but I've seen God's face and conversed with him as a friend. You know what he was establishing there? From all his training in the royal courts of Egypt, I am the Pharaoh God of Israel. I am more than a man. I am a brother to the God. Hmm. That's why I do not die, but you will. So all of this stuff—this bears with—was Moses actually communing with God, or did he make it all up? We don't know yet. Did he have an experience? It was—was was he a madman? Uh, did he, at eighty years old, have this this epiphany and said, "This is it. This is yeah," and he believed it? Uh, did it really happen? well, never, ever, ever, no, unless we meet God someday
0: or build a time machine
4: that 's my next thing man i want a, I want a time machine i wouldn 't go back to change time, you know the whole butterfly effect thing, and yada, 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 <laughs> you step on an ant in Egypt and suddenly you know there 's no America um, or something like that you know, but if I had a time machine i 'd like the i 'd like the ability to go back in invisibility or undetectable and uh and i'd take pictures
1: yeah (laughs) and just watch yeah i'd go into the future i think
4: that'd be interesting yeah
1: but
0: uh i suppose we're almost out of time here um i'd like to to really thank you for coming on scotty it's been a great chat
4: well i sure appreciate you having me letting me just blether on
1: oh it's great i mean i just uh i had some questions but i just wanted to let you keep going there i mean it's just fascinating stuff
4: uh, it's fascinating, even for me. That's why I like to talk about it. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and I can't wait to see you again in uh, October.
4: October at the Paradigm Symposium, the 17th through the 20th. If uh, anybody, if you like this kind of stuff, your listeners, um, you know what? Uh, go to our site, paradigmsymposium.com, or just go to intrepidmag.com and click on the Paradigm Symposium link. We've got tickets up for sale now. We've got a phenomenal cast of speakers. If you like this kind of stuff, and you think this way and you want more of it, come to the Paradigm Symposium. Uh, uh, Darren himself can, can uh, tell you uh, what kind of an experience it was.
0: <laughs> yep, it was uh, a fantastic time. I can't wait to, to come back this year. If, if, if everything goes according to plan, I, sh- I should be there as well. And actually, and, uh, there's a, I'm pretty sure there's a link uh, to Paradigm Symposium 2013 right on the, the Greg America homepage. Oh,
4: fantastic. And by the way, we're doing
0: it at, an,
4: at a new venue this year. Um, we are not going to be at the Hilton DoubleTree. Oh, uh, we're lining up hotels uh, downtown St. Paul as we speak. We're a place uh, that, that is the old St. Paul Union Depot. It's the old train station, oh. a big marble building with the big colonnades outside and pillars and marble hall, and uh, with a big vaulted ceiling running down this this place. Um, and uh, that's where we're doing the whole event this year, and it's going to be pretty amazing.
1: That's great. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I like that, being downtown. If you need a break, you can just walk, uh, you know, walk around yeah. or you can uh, go. Uh, the,
4: the only drawback, quote-unquote, might be that our hotel is not on the same facility, but it's minutes walk or minutes by cab up uh, just a few blocks up from the hotel. There's hotels all around. Uh, we're working on contracting a particular hotel right now. I'll announce that when we have it uh, contracted. But uh, there are also restaurants all around. There's places all over. we are right there at the. It's actually an operating depot for Amtrak is coming in there, and also uh, the the Minneapolis Saint Paul um, Metro Transit. Uh, the train, the train will run you all the way out to the airport and to the Mall of America, and uh, all these different places around the city. So it's it's actually a, a very cool
0: location. We we serving drinks.
4: Absolutely I like your stuff. Uh, way on the far end of the depot and around the corner in this big atrium and it's it's blocked off by doorways and stuff, but uh, you go through there and there's uh the company that is most likely we, we are just working on contracting with them now actually catering our event christos it's a Greek restaurant and bar, and uh, I, I I of course gauged the efficacy of any good bar. By the scotches that they have on their shelf. If they only carried Johnny Walker Red, they are a poor bar. Uh, but uh, they had uh, several of the single malt Highland scotches I like, like Balvenie and Dalwini and Oban and uh, McCallum. And I looked at that and I said, you guys have a bar. <laughs> so uh, that's down there. And uh, we'll be doing the same type of thing as last year. We're going to have the, ban- the banquet catered right there. Uh, it's either going to be on that main ground room and they'll reset it up, or they're giving us uh, if, you, if you stand in this vaulted ceiling atrium, which is the length of a football field and more, and we're going to have all our vendors right there in the same room, by the way, as well. Um, you look back above it at the far end and there's these arched windows that fit the vaulted ceiling. That's the second floor room, the banquet room, and I think that's where we're going to have the banquet in, in this hall this year. Uh, if not, there it'll be just down on the main floor. So uh
1: no oh, that's great. So how else can uh, people get a hold um, of you? It's, it's a it's a pretty cool location.
4: Uh you can get a hold of me at uh, my personal website uh, scottallenroberts.com. Allen is A L A N so Roberts.com, Uh through intrepidmag.com. Uh you can get a hold of me all there. You can find me on Facebook. Uh I think I'm Mr. Scotty Roberts or something like that. All right. And uh uh for the uh, exodus page uh, we've got a group page up over it uh, it's it's uh, uh, facebook.com groups slash Exodus book and you can find John and I there
0: alrighty and we'll have uh, all of that linked in the show notes for sure so uh, anyone listening can just go to the show notes for this episode and, and just click there and it'll take you all to, to any, every place Scotty just mentioned fantastic
1: thanks Scotty it's been really good chatting with you
0: thanks for having me I sure appreciate it that was our chat with uh scott allen roberts of intrepid magazine uh paradigm symposium the list goes on and on and on uh what a gr- what a great chat we ran uh longer than ever because uh it's just hard to stop it's so interesting it's great yeah 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 scott he's a great uh public speaker i can't wait to hear him speak at the paradigm symposium this year uh, as usual of course we'll have all that uh linked in the show notes
1: yeah i was uh I didn't really get too much um, Bible experience when I was younger. Like, I went to Sunday school a bit, so some of that that stuff is hard for me to keep up with. But it's good to hear some of his own experiences there, too, in Egypt.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was a, a great a great talk, and, uh, of course, we had RPJ uh, before that. Um, uh, I do want to apologize for a, a bit of the quality on the intro. Um, we had uh, some, some major Skype problems. Um with our connection. So we were going through some flooding here at the time in Calgary. So I'm pretty sure that had something to do with it. So uh, I apologize for that. I did the best I could with it. And um, uh, hopefully now that the, the scene is cleared up here in Calgary, we, we won't see any more of those. Uh, I know we had a great connection tonight. So
1: Yeah, and we've got uh, Robbie Graham coming up in a few days. So we should be able to get that out pretty quick.
0: Yep, Yeah, we'll have Robbie Graham next week. And then um, after that will be Dennis McKenna.
1: Oh, that's, that'll be a good one, too.
0: Yeah, and then uh, we'll have Nick Redford eventually. Uh, we haven't worked out the logistics of it yet. Um, and, of course, as usual, you'll find uh, links to uh, everything in the show notes. Uh, Graham will uh, get those ready for you guys. Thanks. Yeah, I do the editing. Come on, it's a fair deal.
1: <laughs> All right, well, uh, it's been great chatting with you again. This was a wonderful night, and I'm looking forward to uh, joining you again soon.
0: Yeah, it was great. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming. Big thanks to uh, RPJ and uh, Scotty Roberts again. And uh, we'll see you uh, see you next time with Robbie Graham. Have Ciao. a good one, guys.